0: The Story of Psychology, with your host, Professor Todd, based on the work of Dr. C. George Boray. Part 3, The 1800s, The Romantic Philosophers. would continue on to the present day. It would become increasingly materialistic in French philosophy, culminating in the reductionism of Auguste Comte, 1798 to 1857, wherein all human experience is reduced to biology, chemistry, and ultimately to physics. Rationalism, too, continues into the present day, reaching its peak in Georg Hegel's idealism of the absolute. Hegel, 1770 to 1831, held that all human activity is nothing more than the working of the universe as it slowly and inevitably progresses toward ultimate godhood. In both empiricism and rationalism, and materialism and idealism, the human, especially the individual human person, gets lost either in the eternal bumping of atoms or in the grand scheme of God-making. Our thoughts and feelings are nothing of importance either way. We are just carbon molecules or the twitchings of eternity. Some philosophers were taken aback by this tendency, both before and after Comte and Hegel. They felt that, for human beings, it was our day-to-day living that was at the center of the search for truth. Reason and the evidence of our senses were important, no doubt. But they mean nothing to us unless they touch our needs, our feelings, our emotions. Only then do they acquire meaning. This meaning is what the Romantic movement is all about. I am going to focus on several philosophers that I believe most influenced psychology. The first is Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who is often considered the father of Romanticism. The last is Friedrich Nietzsche, who is sometimes called the greatest Romantic. Afterwards, we will look at the commonalities among these philosophers that let us talk of the Romantic Movement. Jean-Jacques Rousseau. No study of the history of psychology can be complete without a look at Jean-Jacques Rousseau. Rousseau has influenced education, philosophy in the form of Kant and Schopenhauer, political theory such as the French Revolution and Karl Marx, and he inspired the Romantic movement in philosophy, which in turn influenced all these things and psychology once again. Plus, Rousseau is one of the most colorful characters we have ever had. And as an added bonus, Rousseau has left a particularly revealing autobiography in The Confessions. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was born in Geneva, Switzerland in 1712, the second son of the watchmaker Isaac Rousseau and his wife Suzanne Bernard Rousseau. Although a Calvinist, Isaac was also a bit unstable. He left his wife and first son, returned later to father Jean-Jacques, and then left again. Rousseau's mother died one week after Jean-Jacques was born, and so the little boy was raised by an aunt and uncle. They sent him off to boarding school in the country, where he says he learned, quote, all the insignificant trash that has obtained the name of education, end quote. The experience did, however, serve as the start of his love affair with rural life. At 12 years old, Jean-Jacques Rousseau returned to his aunt and uncle, and there he apprenticed to a watchmaker, where he developed two other personal qualities. Constant beatings from his master, as well as at school, led him to lying and idleness. And adolescence led him to develop a rather bizarre romantic streak. He would spend much of the rest of his life falling in love. At 16, Jean-Jacques Rousseau ran away from home with no money or possessions. A Catholic priest introduced young Rousseau to a baroness, Madame de Warrens, a 29-year-old beauty who apparently had a soft spot for losers and potential converts. Her influence led young Jean-Jacques to convert to Catholicism, though he was not yet ready to give up his exhibitionism, nor his desire to be spanked by lovely ladies. He entered a seminary in 1729, but was promptly dismissed. He eventually developed an on-again, off-again physical relationship with the lovely Madame Warrens. In the meantime, Rousseau walked all over the countryside, often for very long distances. He loved the woods, He loved the mountains, he loved nature itself, and he served as an occasional tutor and music teacher, but he spent most of his time reading the Enlightenment authors. The writings of Voltaire turned him to a nature worship quite congenial to his personality. In 1742, when Rousseau was 30 years old, he left for Paris. He quickly befriended the political writer, Diderot, Who managed to help him get a job as a secretary at the French embassy in Venice. He was dismissed because of his insolent nature. In 1746 he met and fell in love with Salice Lavassure, a simple-minded laundress and seamstress. They together had four children, all of whom were sent to orphanages. Keep in mind that this was a rather common practice in those days, And by those days, I refer from the fall of Rome to World War II. Rousseau, however, did feel considerable remorse about this later, and admitted that he would have made a really lousy father. And no one really doubts him on that. Rousseau worked as a secretary to various aristocrats, and spent quite some time composing music. He even rewrote an operetta by Voltaire himself, and wrote to Voltaire, A literary contest with a monetary prize caught his attention. And in 1750, he won with his Discourse on the Arts and the Sciences, a work that was a powerful attack on civilization. Now, this was the first time that we see Rousseau's ideas about the natural goodness of man. And although we think of him as an Enlightenment thinker, This thesis was actually anti-enlightenment, anti-philosophy, anti-reason. It was anti-Voltaire and even anti-printing press. The good life, Rousseau was saying, is the simple life of the peasants. This conception of back to nature involved, of course, a romanticized notion of nature. And it stands in stark contrast to the nature of jungles and deserts. 1752 was another active year for Rousseau. He wrote his comedy Narcissa, his operetta Le Devin du Village, and this work was successfully presented to the king. Ultimately, however, Rousseau's illnesses, he suffered from a variety of painful and humiliating bladder problems, kept him from meeting the king, and with that he forfeited a pension. In 1753, another competition was announced. Rousseau's entry, Discourse on the Origin and Basis of Inequality Among Men, won the contest and was published two years later. In this piece, Rousseau accepted biological inequalities, but argued that there was no natural basis for any other inequalities economic, political, social, or moral. These, he said, were basically due to the existence of private property and the need to defend it with force. Man is good, he argued, but society, which is little more than the reification of greed, corrupts us all. Rousseau admitted that it is no longer possible for us to leave a civilized society now, It has in fact become part of our nature. The best that we can do is to lead simpler lives with fewer luxuries and the simple morality of the Gospels to guide us. In his article on economics for the encyclopedia, Rousseau suggested that it would help if we had a graduated income tax, a tax on luxuries but none on necessities, and national free public education. In 1756, Rousseau moved with Therese and her elderly mother into the Hermitage, a modest cottage lent to him by Madame d'Epinay. There, he wrote a novel or romance called Je ou la nouvelle Héloïse, referring to the Héloïse of Héloïse and Abelard fame. This became perhaps the most famous novel of the 1700s. On the other side, he alienated his friends with unpleasant letters and his rudeness toward his benefactress Madame d'Epinay. Even his oldest friend, Diderot, called him mad. In a huff, he left the hermitage. In 1762, Rousseau published both Emile and the social contract. The first line of the social contract is the most famous quote, Man is born free, and he is everywhere in chains. End quote. The purpose of the rest of the book was to describe a society that would instead preserve that freedom in which man is born. The social contract is admittedly a mythological contract among individuals to surrender some of their freedoms to ensure a community which respects the individual and, thereby, preserves as much freedom as possible. This idea, combined with Locke's thoughts on government, were to inspire the founding fathers of the new United States. It should be noted though that at the end of the book, Rousseau does prescribe the death penalty as punishment for anyone who by their actions shows that they do not hold the common values of the community. The French Revolution would show more clearly than the American Revolution what a double-edged sword philosophy such as Rousseau's can be. The second book, Emile, was far more sedate. It was a treatise on child-rearing, from a man who had sent his four children to orphanages. It turns out, though, he had some pretty good advice. He condemned all forms of education that use force. Instead, he promoted education that nurtured the natural unfolding of a child's potentials. And this in a time when it was thought that... If you didn't beat your children regularly with a good-sized stick, they would grow up to be spoiled. And nature, Rousseau said, was to be the child's primary teacher, with freedom to explore the major teaching method. Basically, Rousseau says that the child learns by gradual adaptation to necessities and by imitation of those around him. Education should be primarily moral, until the child is around 12, when intellectual education begins. Religious education should be held off until the child is 18. This way, the child can develop reasonable religious beliefs, rather than unthinking acceptance of mythologies and miracles. The book Emile is beautifully written but many would say almost naively idealistic. It would be a great influence in Europe and later in the United States. Maria Montessori in Italy, for example, based many of her ideas on Rousseau, as did John Dewey in the United States. What we now call progressive education and learning by doing come basically from Emile. The great philosophers of his time laughed at Rousseau, but the clergy was outraged. Rousseau's friends warned him and encouraged him to flee. In 1762, the French Parliament ordered all copies of Emile confiscated and burned. Rousseau fled to Switzerland, only to have his books burned by the Calvinists in Geneva. He begged Frederick the Great and received asylum in Neuchâtel. There he lived more eccentric than ever, and yet he was the idol of women everywhere, and his publishers begged him for more. He gave them more, primarily in the form of essays or letters to his critics. But the local ministers in Neuchâtel were also upset about his writings, and a local sermon led to an attack on Rousseau's home he and Therese moved again to a lonely cottage on a tiny island in a lake in Switzerland. But he was again ordered to leave, which he did, first to Strasbourg and then to England at the invitation of David Hume in 1766. At first, in London, he was the talk of the town, and everyone wanted to meet him. But Rousseau quickly tired of all of this attention and asked Hume to find him a quiet place in the country. There, Rousseau, Therese, and their dog Sultan put quite a strain on their host's hospitality. Rousseau began to read critical articles in the British press. Already rather paranoid, he responded to them as if they were a conspiracy against him. And even accused Hume of being part of all of it. He and Therese escaped from England back to France. Although technically still in danger of being arrested in France, Rousseau nonetheless enjoyed the receptions that his fans gave him. But fearing for his life, he fled into the countryside to wander anonymously. In 1768, he finally married his Therese. She begged him to go back to Paris, and so they did, but this time under pseudonyms. There, he copied music for a living, and also finished, in 1770, his autobiography. During these latter days in Paris, Rousseau continued to write some of his most beautiful work, as well as some of his most paranoid, until 1778. Around that time, Rousseau moved into a cottage that had been offered to him by the Marquis de Girardin, where he happily studied the local flora, until the time that he suffered a stroke. Thérèse tried to move him onto his bed, but he fell again and cut his head. By the time the Marquis got to him, Rousseau was dead. Jean-Jacques Rousseau was buried on the estate and his grave became a pilgrimage site. He was later moved to the Pantheon in Paris, and was laid to rest not far from, of all people, Voltaire. Johann Wolfgang von Goethe Johann Wolfgang von Goethe was born in 1749 in Frankfurt am Main in Germany. The oldest of six children, although only he and a sister survived into adulthood, Goethe's father, Johann Caspar Goethe, was a well-to-do lawyer and amateur scholar, but a failure in politics and with a considerably unpleasant disposition. Goethe's mother, Katharina Elizabeth Textor, was very much more pleasant and was the daughter of the Burgermeister, the mayor of Frankfurt. Young Goethe was handsome and talented as a youth. He learned languages easily and was interested in music and art. He entered the University of Leipzig to study law, but a disappointment in love led him to sickness and depression. And he left school. In 1771, however, he received his law degree from the University of Strasbourg. His early reading of Pierre Bale's dictionary led him to renounce his Christianity as a teenager and to become an atheist. Goethe later mellowed a bit and adopted a pantheism modeled after Spinoza's. In 1774, He wrote The Sorrows of a Young Werther, a tragic love story that, although panned by the critics, was wildly successful, especially among young romantic intellectuals. The book concludes with a suicide, which was, sadly, imitated by a number of lovesick readers. Like many of his works, this story emphasized the tensions between the nature of the individual And the restrictions of society. The following year, Goethe was invited to join the Duke of Saxony Weimar at court. At first, Goethe was just an ornament there, but later he performed various real political duties, including inspections of mines and the establishment of weather observatories. In 1782, Wolfgang von Goethe was inducted into the nobility which permitted him to add the Vaughn to his name. Because of his fame and status in Weimar, he met and befriended a number of young poets, including Schiller and Herder. Since his teens, Goethe was given to falling in love, yet apparently unable to commit himself to one woman or to the institution of marriage. His longest and most intense relationship began around 1775 with Charlotte von Schart, a married woman who had seven children, although only four of them survived. He would write long and romantic letters to her for most of his life. He did eventually set up a household with a young working-class girl named Christiane Volpius. She bore a child on Christmas Day in 1789. In 1801, Goethe became quite ill, and his recovery took many years. Toward the end of his illness, Napoleon defeated the Prussians at Jena and marched into Weimar. Napoleon's troops attempted to take over Goethe's house, and Christiane physically protected him. After that, he finally married her. Goethe had been a strong admirer of Napoleon, and visited him in 1808 at the Emperor's Invitation. Goethe also visited with Beethoven in 1812. Goethe's greatest work is his two-part play, Faust. Although he began writing it in 1773, it would not be finished until 1831. The first part, however, could stand alone, and it was completed in 18. Its theme was human freedom and the power of passion, which Faust discovers after he wagers his soul in a devil's bargain with Mephistopheles. Now, here's an interesting aside. Goethe's Faust creates an artificial man in his laboratory. This story influenced a certain Mary Shelley, the author of Frankenstein, perhaps the first science fiction novel. Mary Shelley even places her story in a 13th century castle she had seen which belonged to the old and colorful German family Frankenstein, a castle Goethe was also quite familiar with. In addition to his poetry, novels, and plays, Goethe spent considerable time on science. He studied medicine, anatomy, physics, chemistry, botany, and meteorology. In 1792, he completed the two part Contributions to Optics, and in 1810, the three part On the Theory of Colors. He truly believed that it was these works that would be his greatest contributions. Instead, few scientists approved of them, and they were to make little serious impact on the field. Goethe's approach was really more phenomenological than experimental, and his work reflected more on the substantive experiences of color and light than on their physics. He also wrote a book called The Metamorphosis of Plants, in which he suggested that all plants were just variations on a primitive plant that he called Herbphlonsae. Along the way, he coined the term morphology and showed the relationship of human beings to animals with his discovery of the human intermaxillary bone, which is located just above your upper teeth, just where it is located in lower animals. Goethe's wife, Christiana, died in 1816. His lifelong love, Charlotte, died in 1827. The Duke died the following year, and his last remaining child died in 1830. Suffering from sickness and depression, Goethe himself finally died on March 22, 1832, one year after finishing the second half of his masterpiece, Faust. Arthur Schopenhauer Arthur Schopenhauer was born February 22, 1788, in Danzig, Prussia, now Gdansk, in Poland. His father was a successful businessman and his mother a novelist. Young Arthur was moved around Europe quite a bit, which allowed him to keep fluent in several languages and to develop a deep love of nature. In 1805, Schopenhauer's father died. And so the young man tried a business career. He lived with his mother for a while in Weimar and she introduced him to Goethe. He went on to study medicine at the University of Göttingen and philosophy at the University of Berlin and ultimately he received his doctorate from the University of Jena in 1813. Later he worked with Goethe on Goethe's studies on color. In 1819, Schopenhauer published his greatest work, The World as Will and Idea. To Schopenhauer, the phenomenal world is basically an illusion. The true reality, what Kant would call the thing in itself, Schopenhauer refers to as will. Now the word will seems perhaps an odd term to us today, but it's more like the Tao in Chinese philosophy. It is out of the will that everything derives. But it has more the qualities of a force, and it pushes or drives what we perceive as the phenomenal world. Will is, you could say, the inner nature of all things. So, if you want to understand some things or someone's inner nature, you need only look within yourself. So the will also drives us through our instincts, and this concept of being driven through instincts would influence a young Sigmund Freud a generation later. Schopenhauer, profoundly influenced by his readings of Buddhist literature, saw life as essentially painful. We are forced by our natures, our instincts, to live, to breed, to suffer, and to die. Schopenhauer, is often described as the great pessimist. Here are some examples of his writing. For the world is hell, and men are on one hand tormented souls, and on the other devils in it. If you imagine the sum total of distress, pain, and suffering of every kind which the sun shines upon in its course, you will have to admit It would have been much better if the sun had been able to call up the phenomenon of life as little on the earth as on the moon. To our amazement, we suddenly exist, after having for countless millennia not existed. In a short while, we will again not exist, also for countless millennia. That cannot be right, says the heart. The question, of course, Is how does one get past all of this suffering? One way that Schopenhauer recommends is aesthetic salvation. Seeing the beauty in something or someone. When we do this, we are actually looking at the universal or the essence behind the scene, which moves us in turn toward the universal subject within ourselves. This quiets the will, that forces us into the phenomenal world. Schopenhauer believed that music was the purest art, one step away from will. A second way to transcend suffering is through ethical salvation or compassion. Here too, it is the recognition of the self in others and the others in self that leads to a quieting of the will. But these are only partial answers. The full answer, according to Schopenhauer, requires religious salvation, asceticism, the direct stilling of all desires by a life of self-denial and meditation. Without the will, only nothingness remains, which is Nirvana. Schopenhauer lived many years of his life a bitter and reclusive man, unable to deal with his lack of success in life. He began publishing his works again in 1836, and intellectuals all over Europe began to develop an interest in him. Sadly, Schopenhauer developed heart problems, and on September 21, 1860, he died. After his death, he would powerfully influence such notables as the composer Richard Wagner, Friedrich Nietzsche, Thomas Mann, and many other writers.